Hello and welcome to The Bar. The Bar in Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Consulting Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro with the Legal Consulting Group. And hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group. If you are tuning in for the second, third, fourth, or multiple times, thanks so much for continuing to be with us. If this is your first time tuning in, we are so glad to have you. If you would like to subscribe to our podcast, you can. Anywhere you get your podcast, just download, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review, but thanks for being here and thanks for letting us do this with you guys today. And uh, yes, because I'm a boomer and I'm new to this. So Kerry gave me a list of places where you can download our podcast. You can get it from Tower Records, Borders Bookstore, (laughs) and it's also available uh, with a lifetime membership at Blockbuster. And let me just say, there's a reason why JD is a healthcare lawyer and not a stand-up comic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, thank you. We teased on our last episode that we're going to be looking at two recent developments in healthcare that occurred actually this last month. One was the issuance of the long-awaited, much-discussed, and you know, slightly feared proposed mental health parity regulations. And all three agencies came out with those in the last month, and they are going to create some substantial compliance and administration issues for employers. So we're going to be talking about that. Another one, and this actually intersects with what's going on uh, across the Potomac here, a lot of focus in Congress on pharmacy and on PBMs in particular and regulation of PBMs. And as is usually the case, when there's not a lot of development at the federal level, states get into the act. And there have been several states that have enacted uh, rules on uh, prescription benefit managers and regulating them. There was a recent case out in uh, the 10th Circuit, uh, which actually addresses the risk of preemption issues uh, with respect to that legislation. So I know there are you know, some employers here who are not governed by ERISA. A lot of you are, uh, but we're going to be going into that as well. And then we'll have a last call, which I'll tell you about in a moment. So with that, Kerry is going to take us through some of the proposed rules that are out there and what employers have to worry about, which I understand is a lot. Well, so let's back up a little bit. We, As we've heard today, I think every person who has presented today has talked about mental health and the importance of mental health, whether you're an employer, whether it's um, a focus of your community, whether it's a focus of your family. It's also a focus of the federal government. And enforcement of mental health parity for employer group health plans has really been a high priority, particularly for this administration. And in order to continue to move the needle on mental health parity, the administration did just recently release proposed regulations around how plans have to cover mental health benefits under their employer group health plans. Mental health parity has been out there for quite a while, but these proposed regulations that came out last month really go into a lot more detail and provide, in some cases, with more guidance for employers on how they need to comply with some of these requirements. So the slide that you see behind me is is just an overview of the summary of what was included in these proposed regulations. The focus of these proposed regulations are on non-quantitative treatment limits. That's a bit of a mouthful in QTL. What does that mean? It's your restrictions in your plan that are numerical. So they're not co-insurance, they're not co-pay, and they're things like pre-authorization requirements. What kind of pre-authorization requirements do you have when it comes to your mental health benefits? 
Do you have those restrictions that are more stringent when they come to your mental health benefits than they are to your medical benefits? Not only are they designed more stringently, but are they being applied operationally more stringently than they are to your medical benefits? So that's what the regulators are focused on, these NQTLs. And so they've come up with some new tests around how plans will have to demonstrate that they are in parity when it comes to these NQTLs and their mental health benefits. And and we'll go through a little bit of that in a minute. There are certain existing requirements that the regulators were somewhat helpful in providing us with additional guidance and some areas where the regulators did not provide some of the helpful guidance that we were actually looking for. One of the, the big things included in these proposed regulations that we'll talk about in more detail is that the fiduciary of the plan is going to have to certify to the documentation that plan sponsors have to provide to the Department of Labor or HHS if you're a non-federal governmental employer around the compliance with mental health parity and the documentation that actually shows that you're compliant. So think of how much fun it will be to get that fiduciary to put their name on something that goes to the federal government and said, this, this absolutely complies with the law. So enjoy that conversation. So just to get into a little more detail and You know, I know this is not the most scintillating topic, but I actually did want to give a shout out to someone who earlier during Kevin's presentation said that compliance was a hot issue for them because we never get that (laughs) compliance is a hot issue. So I was so thankful to see that. But anyway, so these proposed regulations on mental health parity, they propose a new three part test that plans will have to document that their NQTLs are being applied in compliance with the requirements. The three-part test is a no more restrictive requirement, which means you'll have to show that any NQTL that you apply to your mental health benefit is not designed and is not administered more stringently than it is to your medical benefits. So there's actually a mathematical test that you'll apply to demonstrate this. The second test is the design and application requirement. So you are going to have to um, explain to the regulators why you came up with a certain NQTL and what's your evidence for that and are using the same type of evidence to apply your NQTL on the medical side or are you just doing it on the mental health side, which demonstrates to the regulators that maybe you're not in compliance and maybe you are making it more difficult for participants to access mental health benefits. Thirdly, there is a data request requirement. I think this is also going to be somewhat challenging from an administrative perspective. There's all sorts of data that plans will have to analyze in terms of outcomes. Are people actually able to access mental health benefits? And what is the data that demonstrates that they are or they are not? For each of these tests, there are certain exceptions. If you are using an NQTL because it's based on professional clinical standards or it's to prevent waste, fraud, and abuse, you can apply the NQTL but you're going to have to demonstrate that is, in fact, the case. Kerry, when you, when you get into all this testing and you say it's, it's an obligation of the plan to do it, I mean, who's actually going to end up doing the testing? I mean, are employers going to have access to this data or they try to get someone else to? Yeah, so that's a really great question because, you know, a plan sponsor of a self-insured plan does have ultimate responsibility for making sure that the plan complies with mental health parity. However, at the end of the day, 
most of the design and certainly almost all of the administration does fall on your carrier partners. So you are going to have to work really closely with them to get this type of information to see how much of this that they can do on your behalf. And uh, as we get a little further down the road, we actually do have a list of things that you might want to start talking to your carrier about to make sure that you're in compliance. Just to go through a couple of other things that were included in the proposed regulations, you might recall that the Consolidated Appropriations Act required employers to put together a comparative analysis, which is essentially this documentation of your NQTLs. This requirement has been out there for a couple of years, but employers have really been struggling with it. And that's because there wasn't a ton of guidance about what these comparative analyses should look like, what exactly did the DOL and HHS want. There was a lot of back and forth where the DOL said, Every single comparative analysis that we requested did not have the information that we wanted. So we were hopeful that the DOL would give us more information on what this documentation should look like. They gave us some more, but not a lot more. We had actually asked for a sample of the comparative analysis, and they did not give us that. So it was sort of a catch-22 here. They gave us a little bit more, but not exactly what we wanted. But there is some more information there about what this document should look like. Other things that are included in the NQTL proposed regs, the certification that we talked about, that's going to be a big deal. So you want to make sure you understand who your fiduciary is. They're going to have to certify that the content of that comparative analysis is, in fact, meeting the requirements. And then there is also a clarification around who can have access to this documentation, these proposed regulations make clear that participants can also request this documentation. It would be part of how the plan operates. So under ERISA, participants can make a request for that. They can also make a request for that documentation in the claims and appeals process. So if a claim is denied and the participant wants to appeal that under ERISA and under the Public Health Services Act, for non-federal governmental employer plans. Participants can request the documentation on which the decision was made. This will now include these comparative analyses as well as they relate to mental health benefits. So as you can imagine, your TPA, who is going to be the one administering this, you know, they're going to have to have that documentation available. It's not just something they can put on the, uh, you know, do it on the fly. Uh, it's going to it's going to have to be out there. And, you know, to the extent there's any litigation, it's going to be relying on that on that documentation. Yeah. So here's just some specific action items for employers as you're working through what you're going to need to have in place if the DOL does ask. And you are going to have to partner with your service providers to get this information. So first of all, you want to ask your carriers, do they have an updated comparative analysis for your plan? If your plan has a different design than the carrier's standard plan design, they may not have those non-standard provisions documented documented in the comparative analysis. So you'll need to, to think about how you're going to address that. You'll want to ask them for a list of NQTLs, again, for your specific plan. And if the, you know, I, I always think it's interesting, we're seeing some of the carriers come out with specific recommendations around changes in plan design. I think it's interesting to know whether those changes in plan design came from feedback from the regulators. So it might be worth asking your carriers if they have changed their plan design based on any feedback they've gotten from federal or state regulators around mental health parity compliance. 
You'll want to review your plan to make sure your plan does not on its face have any exclusions around mental health parity that the department has specifically identified as red flags. Um, just to give you a couple of examples, if you cover autism spectrum disorder benefits, but you do not cover ABA therapy, that will be a red flag for the departments. And if you cover nutritional therapy for conditions such as diabetes, but you don't cover nutritional therapy for someone with an eating disorder, that would also be a red flag for the, the regulators. And then think about the contracts that you have in place with your service providers. What language is in there that documents how your service provider will help you with compliance around mental health parity? Um, what sort of indemnification provisions are in there if the DOL has said that you are not compliant and you're relying on, on the services of your provider to, to help you be compliant? And then what types of data and claims information will the carrier make available to you so you can audit them and you can see what how their compliance is? Because again, at the end of the day, you are ultimately responsible for compliance with this as a self-insured plan. So I know that was a lot of technical information, but it is as I said, something that is a high enforcement priority for the regulators. So you do want to make sure that you are getting your ducks in a row on this. The other thing around mental health parity that the regulators came out with at the same time as these proposed regs was a technical release. And th this was n these were not requirements or proposed requirements. They're just looking for comments from plan sponsors on um, NQTLs related to network access. So we've we heard a lot about this today. Like some of the problems around mental health is not just making sure that plans pay for it, but is it's is there access to a mental health provider? And the regulators understand that the environment that we live in and that there is a shortage of mental health providers, but they want to make sure that plans are doing everything that they can to bring providers into the network, that it's not because plans aren't paying providers enough or because plans aren't doing enough outreach to different types of mental health providers to bring them into the network. So the DOL wants to hear from employers and other stakeholders stakeholders about uh, whether the DOL should be requesting certain types of data around network access, whether it's around out-of-network utilization, because obviously if out-of-network utilization is high, that means you don't have a lot of providers in the network. What is the actual percentage of in-network providers who are submitting claims? And the reason why the DOL is asking about this is because they're trying to get at this problem of ghost networks. So plans saying, oh, yes, we have all of these in-network providers, but when someone actually tries to access them, they either aren't taking new patients or they're not in the network anymore. So the DOL wants to know about that, too. What are the time and distance standards? How far does someone have to travel to have access to a mental health provider? And then what are the reimbursement rates? Are uh, these providers being reimbursed as a percentage? of Medicare? Are they being re, um, reimbursed comparably to your medical providers? So the DOL wants to know about that too. 
So, so while they are considering asking plans for all of this information, sort of the flip side here is that the DOL has said, well, if we are going to ask you to provide all of this data, then maybe we will give you a safe harbor around the network access standards to say, okay, if you can meet certain requirements with respect to this data, then we will say that you are compliant when it comes to network access. So giving um, plans a, a safe harbor to be able to meet those requirements. So comments on both the proposed regs and this technical release are due October 2nd. So if you do have thoughts on what you think about this, other than it's going to be a lot of work to comply, I think the regulators would like to hear that. So just one more comment on this before we get to the Oklahoma case. You heard Kerry talk about the contract issues that are involved here, indemnifications, things like that. Do make sure that you have a contract that you have actually read and signed. Even in 2023, we have a lot of clients who still do not fully execute their contracts. Some cases don't even negotiate the contracts. You know, you have to take a look at what those indemnification provisions are, you know, as well as the other aspects of the contract, such as your right to audit. So do make sure that those have been negotiated, that those have been signed. CFOs generally don't like to see indemnification provisions, especially if their client is the one giving it. So take a look at that. Run that past general counsel. Yeah, so... Now we're just going to spend a few minutes talking about this Mulrady decision. So as J.D. mentioned, there's been a lot of activity on the state level around regulating pharmacy benefit managers, and some of those regulations have a downstream impact on group health plans and the types of designs that they have. So, J.D., can you tell us about this case in Oklahoma and what happened there? Yeah, as this Car- is late-breaking news. Yeah, as Carrie said, this has old. been a trend among, well, a month, late-breaking for us on a monthly schedule. Okay, so that's the way we operate on a a monthly basis. But as I said before, pharmacy reform has been a big focus in Congress and also a big focus in the states. Florida actually enacted a very comprehensive reform bill with respect to pharmacy benefit managers. And there's been litigation in Oklahoma regarding their own patients' rights bill, which talks about pharmacy choice. And a district court ruled that ERISA did not, in fact, preempt this law, which had everything, regulated everything from network access to the pharmacy discounts that could be provided in network to requiring any willing provider to be pulled into the network and also to regulate uh, conditions under which you put, could put pharmacists on probation. And so this was appealed up to the Tenth Circuit, and the issue became, did ERISA preempt this law with respect to plans that are governed by ERISA? And the rules of ERISA preemption, I just to give it a shorthand here, if a state law simply makes it too expensive or more expensive for a plan to do something, that's not preempted by ERISA. That goes back to a decision by the Supreme Court in 1995 called Pataki versus Travelers. So if, the, if it simply makes it more expensive, that's not preempted. But if it changes a fundamental aspect of your plan administration, or if it forces your plan to adopt a certain administrative scheme, then that is considered to be preempted. And the court in this case determined that there was, in fact, a preemption argument, and they, and they accepted it, and they took out all four of these standards here. And they said that you don't avoid a risk of preemption simply by regulating the third party that you don't simply go after the provider and say, well, we're not regulating the plan with respect to administration, we're regulating how the provider administers it. That is simply not going to cut it in ERISA preemption. So this, actually, this law's impact, with at least in Oklahoma and the Tenth Circuit states there, is really good for employers there. 
for Florida and for other states like this, they're going to look to this case to try to knock out these other PBM state laws uh, on the basis of ERISA preemption. If you do end up with a conflict in the circuits, you will probably end up seeing this one at the Supreme Court. Supreme Court these days doesn't agree on much, but I remember a conference with Justice Breyer and with Justice Scalia about 10 years ago where they said the one thing that they do agree on is that they hate ERISA cases. So they will do everything they can to avoid ERISA preemption, barring a split in the circuits. And even under those cases, Scalia looked like he didn't want to take them at all. I was since both Scalia and Breyer are now and of gone, course they're no longer have- they're no, no longer there. I have no idea at all what the new Supreme Court, I mean, going back to Kagan and Sotomayor, no idea what any of them think on ERISA preemption. It is not something that is talked about a lot. And I'll just drop something here, which I think it just illustrates where we are in terms of what's going on in, in Congress. I'm sure everybody tuned in to the Republican primary debate a couple of weeks ago. For the first time since 1988, not one question at that debate centered on health care which I think just tells you where we are in terms of a consensus going forward, at least for the next couple of years, as what kind of legislation you're going to see in Congress. There's no more debate over, you know, repealing the Affordable Care Act. We're not going to do repeal and replace. Single-payer Medicare is out for now. I think what you're going to see, as, as you know, Kerry pointed out, is focus on mental health parity and then also focus on drugs, on the cost of medication, the cost of pharmacy, and also efforts to regulate PBMs. So I think... So, Carrie? Yeah, no, I just wanted to bring this, you know, back to employers for a minute. So, you know, these PBM laws at the state level, they are having an impact on employer plan design. So, for example, the Oklahoma law said that you could not incentivize participants to use mail-order pharmacies. And, you know, it was directed at the PBM saying the PBM couldn't incentivize it, but we all know that's the plan. That's the plan's design. So, you know... Having laws like that on a state-by-state level is really difficult for plan sponsors, a lot of you that have participants in multiple states, and the PBMs who have, in certain cases, have to be licensed at the state level. So this is really a big deal that employers have been struggling with, even though we talk about, you know, ERISA, esoteric. You know, there are a lot of plans that, that are not subject to ERISA, it, so that'll be an issue. But it is, well. but it is a big deal. And now we have this Tenth Circuit case that says ERISA does preempt these state laws, so that's good generally for employers and ERISA preemption. But that's just one circuit. So we still have laws in almost in a majority of the states around PBM regulation. So we are going to continue to see this issue. But in the meantime, we'd suggest that you talk to your PBMs, particularly if you have participants in states that are in the 10th Circuit and what they're doing with respect to these laws at the, in other states. And, you know, J.D.'s mentioned Florida a few times. It's not just Florida. It's New Jersey. It's Texas. It's Maryland, I believe, and Virginia. So, I mean, it's happening everywhere. So just to put a bow on that. Just a couple of quick things. Gag clause attestation. This was part of the transparency requirements of the Consolidated Appropriations Act. We're not going to go into a lot of detail around this. Just know it's something that you have to do by the end of the year, so make sure it's on your to-do list. And then finally, the employer shared responsibility affordability percentage was just released. 
So plans have to meet this affordability percentage in terms of the coverage that they offer to their full-time employees in order to avoid the employer shared responsibility penalties. This actually went down to 8.39%. This is the second year in a row that the affordability percentage has actually gone down. So the takeaway here is if you are, you know, on the cusp of whether the plans you offer are affordable or not, and you were just meeting the percentage for last year, you should take another look at that now that the percentage has decreased. So this is the part of our podcast that we call Last Call, because we're a bar and it's time for the end, in which we discuss, or rather I discuss, and Terry tolerates, uh, discusses on anything that's not law-related, like Netflix streaming series, you know, baseball, or in this case, the fact that tonight is the opening of NFL season. Uh, now, I don't watch professional football. I'm a New York Jets fan. Uh, I'll, I'll wait. Don't worry. Uh, but I do want to point out that Washington, I understand the Washington football team now has a new owner, okay? And perhaps they will also get a new name because the Washington Commanders has to be the worst name ever picked by a football team. I, I am, I'm totally aligning myself with Jason Gay in the Wall Street Journal. I told you not to say said, that. I know, I know, but I, I didn't get a good credit where credit is due. Uh, Jason Gay, one of my favorite columnists, said the new name for the Washington football team should be the Washington Gridlock. So that people who don't like government can say, I'm cheering for gridlock. Uh, so with that, I want to again thank the Virginia Hospital Center for hosting us today. And thank you all for sticking here through the end. And Carrie, you can take that. And us out. that's our report for today. We'd like to thank our producer, Don Moorhead, who is back in Chicago recording this. He always makes us sound way better than, than we deserve. And from all of us here at Aon, I'm Carrie Willis. And I'm J.D. Perot. Thanking you for your time this time, and until next time, the bar is closed. You've been listening to The Bar on Healthcare, an Aon podcast. Aon is not engaged in the practice of law. The information in this podcast is not intended as and should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your own legal counsel to obtain such advice.